his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. It's 6.34 on a Saturday evening. Great to be with you on this Saturday, along with producer Jonathan Lowe uh, here at News Talk 830. Well, one of the big news stories this week, of course, the start of the Muhammad Noor trial. He, of course, is the former Minneapolis police officer who was accused of murdering Justine Ruschek Damon back in the summer of 2017. It's a fascinating trial. It's been a very tense start. I think that's fair to say. I have not been in the courtroom, but I have talked to our reporter, Reg Chapman from WCCO-TV, who has been there every day. We've gotten updates on some of the motions. A number of them involve the media, which is a little unusual. Uh, but we want to break it down with somebody who is a very well-known criminal defense attorney. He also is a former prosecutor, Marsh Hallberg. Marsh, thanks so much for coming on. Did I hear you say that we're getting snow? I, I did. <laughs> That's why I actually, I actually like read the whole forecast. It's not what I said to Jonathan earlier as I looked at it. Well, at least they're not talking about the threat of what happened last year, last April, when we got that blizzard. Uh, I believe it was April 13th because I was working. It was a Saturday night when it hit and that was something. But yeah, sorry, Marsh. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe, but, but, but it's, it's mixed. It's mixed. Okay. Well, Possible. Yeah. I'm still in therapy over that storm last April, so we got to get through this. You and me, you and me both. <laughs> All right, let, let, let's start out here uh, with a look at the Mohammed Noor trial. Uh, it, it's been sort of a slow start. They have not gotten a jury seated. What are the things that have, that have stood out to you as somebody who's been on both sides of the fence here? You've been a prosecutor for 25 years. You've been a criminal defense attorney for 15. What are some thoughts about what, what's unusual in this case? I mean, there are so many things that are unusual. Well, obviously, because of the uh, publicity, we've, we've pulled more jurors, potential jurors, up into the, I call it the herd, you know, the, the large group that you draw from the panel. So they they brought in a lot of extras to be able to make sure, because they assume more people would have to be disqualified because of knowing about the case or, you know, not being able to sit for this long for a trial, because it's a fairly long trial compared to many. Yes. Uh, those are a couple factors. Uh, another one, they're going to seat four alternates, and that means that there are the normal 12 jurors. There'll be four, so actually we call it 16 in the box. So we'll probably put a few chairs in front of the others. And, and is that un, uh, unusual to have four yeah, alternates? Four is very. I've, I've never. I've had six week long trials. I've never had four extra jurors. And and, and explain explain what the alternates are because it. I mean they're they're not technically on the jury, but they are on the jury. Uh, explain how that works because it's a little unusual. Right. So what happens is is that you you allow for maybe people getting sick, family emergencies, somebody does something inappropriate, has to get kicked off the jury, whatever. You don't have to do a do-over for these trials. So you have some extras. And they sit through the whole case. They sit up in the jury box. They listen to the entire case, all the jury instructions, closing arguments. And that's the worst thing in the world because they've spent all of this time, many weeks, heard the whole case. And at the end, the um, judge says, to the four alternates, thank you very much for being here. Unfortunately, you don't get to, to play in the sandbox anymore, and uh, you have to go home, and the other people get to go make the, the big decision. And so. and so they don't know if they're alternates. 
At they don't, although I, t- I was actually on a Hennepin County jury here in the last couple months myself, and uh, there were people who actually were, who were talking about that, about um, who, were, who were alternates and not, and, and it didn't go very far, but people, I think, are starting to understand that more and starting to figure out how, if they're the ones or not. Got it. Okay. Um, so, so they've got four alternates, and um, which, which is a lot. And so going forward here, um, w- what happens next? Well, they, you know, we pretty good guess. I think by everybody, we thought the uh, the jury selection was called voir dire, which is, you know, what most people don't know Latin or French terms, but that's an old term. And actually, voir was from it means true out of old French, and dire was to say. So it's basically to say the truth. And from that, the uh, that has come forward over the last few hundred years to be the process we use to try to pick pick our jury. Um, so we guessed it was going to go through Friday, pretty close. It'll probably be done by. Oh, I'd say midday on Monday. I think the decision will be, do they let the jurors go home on Monday to come back here openings on Tuesday, or do they actually go right into the opening arguments Monday afternoon? I think generally the attorneys are going to prefer to come back. They want people to be really fresh to hear, you know, the, the, the presentation that's going to be done to tell them what the opening statements will be. Uh, the the government goes first, of course, and gets up and says the old saying, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and tell them what you told them, right? So that's the basic same thing we do in a trial. We get up and tell them what we're going to tell them. So the government gets up and says, you know, good morning, we're the prosecution. This is what this case is about. Here's who we're going to call as our witnesses. Here's the evidence that we think will come in. And that's why we think we should win this at the end of the of the case. The defense doesn't have to do their opening right then. They can just call reserve it. They can just say, thank you, Judge, we'll do ours at the end of the state's case. We know that the defense... Oh, they, they don't have to do an opening at the no. beginning of the trial? No. And I, I did not switch. know that, and, and I've, I've, I've covered a lot of trials. So it, there's the opening statement, and it's sort of, to me, I sort of think of it as the roadmap. Yep. Or, or, and they'll or actually they... use that term. They'll actually that? use that term. The attorneys will use that term a lot of times to the jury. This is the roadmap I'm going to tell you about for yeah, the, where we're going. This is what we're going to do. But, but, but the defense doesn't have to do that. They can wait. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I've shifted. I actually used to do a, a, you know, most people don't do that. But if you've got a case where you really don't know what your defense is going to be in the sense of you don't know who you're going to call or what your, you know, you might have a couple different theories and you don't know what you're going to use for your strategy until the state's case is done. You don't want to get up and say, here's what our case is about. And then when you get to your case, it's totally different. So either you get up and you do your opening in the beginning and be very vague, you know, just about, you know, they didn't prove the case and, you know, that, you know, that kind of thing. Or you just hold your opening until the state's case is completely done. Then you get up and say, okay, we've sat here politely for the last couple of weeks, listened to their version of the case. Now we're going to tell you, you know, the way it really was our version of the case. And here's who we're going to call. But, but don't think. I mean, don't they have to disclose all the evidence they have? So don't they – shouldn't the defense pretty much know what they're going to say or, or could the prosecution have a few tricks up its sleeve? Yeah, this isn't that kind of case. I fully expect that uh, you know Plunkett or Wold will do their openings at the front end. But sometimes it's not only what's said but how it's said or how believable it was. Uh, or somebody may come off as really a shaky witness that you didn't know about on paper. And then you want to get up in your opening and say, you know, this case is all built on really shaky evidence and shaky witnesses. And so you play off of that theme of what you've already heard. Okay. And, and so so they may or may not do that. And, and how often is it pretty rare to save it until after the prosecution has done yeah, I'd say I'd say ten percent, maybe or less. It just yeah, most cases don't you don't wait because 
people tend to lock down into a, a belief system or a theory of something, and it's harder to change them later. So you want to get them at the front okay. end when they're fairly a blank slate of what they're thinking and try to neutralize the government's claim to, you know, tell them to remind okay. them to be patient. You know, oh, sometimes oh. if I know for sure my, my client is going to testify, I may tell them that right in the front, that no matter what, I know my guy's testifying. Okay. So, and I want to get into some of the arguments they've had over, over evidence, but I do want to ask you about jury selection. And, and there's been so much publicity in this case. And you've had, you know, a number of jurors kicked off. Um, you know, one was a victim of a crime as a child. Uh, one had feelings about Somalis. How do you know if people are telling the truth? I mean, you can't really, can you? No, you, you never do. I mean, I, most times I will have somebody in the courtroom that's just sitting back out of the table. Obviously, if I have another attorney and my client, I'm saying your job is just try to read body language here and eye contact and all those nuances, but I'll probably have somebody else in the, in the courtroom that's back uh, watching as well that is just trying to be a more neutral observer, or they may see or pick up things or uh, that others might because we're too busy trying to you know do battle to catch that. And then there'll be a break before these attorneys actually pick the final group, and I would then go back and or have some notes passed up to me from that other person I have in the courtroom to give me their information. But it really gets to be a gut that kind of feel at some point. You're, and a lot of times what you're really trying to do is you're trying to just, you may not be able to, working to get the, the good jurors, but you're trying to get rid of the bad jurors. Right. That's your I, mean, I, guess, I guess you don't want somebody who, who really wants to be on the jury Yeah, you, for a particular you, reason yeah, or as an accident. Right. That's right. the scary thing. Is for the, that's the sleeper reason that we all get really scared about. Is and In this case, boy, it, it, it just lends itself so to wind to have a bigger public agenda here about making a comment on, you know, no police officer's ever been convicted. Maybe it's time or maybe it's the reverse is that, you know, you know, blue lives matter. Maybe it's the opposite of that. Or maybe the Somalian angle either way is a, is a really volatile point. So this, this, in more than most cases, this voir dire is, uh, is really important. All right. And, and so, so, so that they go forward. One of the issues that came up was that there was an argument about how many reporters should be in the courtroom. Uh, and there were originally only four, and then the, the media protested that, and they got more seats in there. Um, is that unusual? Yeah, I just, I, most cases, the courts seem to be very accommodating about trying to find the biggest courtroom they can. You know, in federal court in Minneapolis, downtown Minneapolis, the top floor of that building is, is one entire courtroom, basically. So you can accommodate things. And there are bigger courtrooms in Hennepin County Government Center. They could accommodate more people than they have now. It's, what, 30 total, I think, is it? Um, and uh, so I, I wish they had done that. Right. You know, we've got the flow over room with the television, but that really doesn't give the the, the vibe the and the energy of what's going on. Yeah. In the so they've allowed more reporters in, and, and they've, according to uh, Reg Chapman, my colleague at, at WCCO-TV, he says they just put in extra chairs. One thing, though, that I find really just startling is that normally in every trial I've been to, especially ones that involve, you know, a crime against a person, you you have the defense uh, family sitting on one side of the courtroom, and you've got the the you know, uh, the, in other words, the victim's family sitting on one side, and then you've got you know the main the accused family sitting on the other side. Apparently, they're in the same row, and they have to climb over each other to get to their seats. Yeah, I, I mean that's that just also sounds very unusual. And it it's sounds horrible. Them. Yeah, and it's unfair for them too, and it, it's. Uh, yeah, yeah. So again, I just really wish they'd gotten to a bigger courtroom for this. You know, it's just the whole 
so we're not used to maybe this many big cases like this because of who we are in Minnesota, but um, it's in this whole media order waiting to see whether you get to, uh, you know, get to actually see the uh, body cam video of the spectators in the courtroom oh. is obviously up for grabs. Right. Well, I want to I want to ask you about that. We do have to take a quick break. I want to oh. ask you about that um, afterwards, as well as the 3D um uh, exhibit that the, the, that the prosecution wants to bring in, and then also just overall strategy. So we have to take a quick break. We'll come back more with Marsh Hallberg. He is not only a well-known criminal defense attorney, he was also a prosecutor for many, many years, so he can see it from both sides. We'll lean on his expertise as we go over and, and talk about what is expected to be the start of the Mohammed Noor trial, the start of the testimony at the Mohammed Noor trial coming up this week. Esme Murphy, along with criminal defense attorney Marsh Hallberg, we are talking about the start of the Mohammed Noor trial. He is the man, the former Minneapolis police officer, who is accused of murdering Justine Ruschek Damon. Want to ask you about uh, this debate over whether or not those in the courtroom can see the body cam video from the two officers. Uh, the officers did not have the body cams on when the incident, the shooting actually happened, but apparently they turned them on right afterwards because there is body camera video of the officers trying to help Justine Ruschek Damon as she lay dying. Uh, What is the essence of the argument here? And and again, is this unusual? This is really unusual. Uh, I've just not had this experience before where there there is a order in the by the judge standing at this point, unless it gets changed, it basically is saying on this body cam footage that it's too intrusive. Uh, you know, it shows the uh, partially naked or naked um, victim and the death uh, that it's just so emotional that it's not going to be shown to the courtroom. It's going to be the monitors will be turned so the attorneys and judge can see the video and the jury can see the video, but the people in the courtroom cannot see it. And the judges just rule out to try and respect for this family and the, the deceased that she's not going to allow that. Um, I understand that, you know, that the media coalition has, has brought that claim to her and that she, and an argument was done last Friday afternoon about three o'clock and that is still under debate to see where that goes. I understand the defense has now, uh, objected to not letting the public see it as well. Uh, the point being at the end of this case, however it ends, the argument will be for the rest of us to decide, did the jury get it right? We'd like to know what that evidence is. Right. Okay. And 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 there is, you know, one of the tenets of our court system is that the public and the press being the representative of the public has the right to actually have access to that trial. Uh, another argument is over the 3D rendering of the scene. Uh, apparently, the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension has created a, a 3D rendering of the scene so it's not uh, actual video of the scene. It's their creation of what a 3D rendering is. What are your thoughts about uh, the defense's objection to this? This is an emerging, I kind of look, it's almost like self-driving cars, right, Esme, that we get into new technology and the question is at what point is it reliable and, and have validity to come into the courts? So there's a 
fancy phrase, we call it a Fry-Mac hearing. And a Fry-Mac hearing is when you have emerging scientific evidence or technology that you think has become reliable enough that it should be allowed for juries to hear about it. So it's kind of been framed like a Fry-Mac hearing. Is this laser, it's called a fly-through 3D video, is this actually something that's credible enough or reliable enough to allow in? But it really came down more, I think, in this case, to the underlying way that 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 um, video was created. It's I have not actually seen it, but I've had it described to me that it, just like any other 3D, you know, like a walkthrough you can do in a architectural home or something, that you can spin this thing, you can actually do an aerial view and come down on it. And they have this video, and I think they actually have pawns, you know, like a chess pawn is for the location of Officer Knorr or for the for the deceased, those types of things, and it's try to talk about gun um, trajectory and paths and those types of things. Um, so it's it's a brand new uh, situation. The judge, I think, got this one right. She ruled that that can't come in. And part of the problem is the way that it was created. The uh, For the example, the location of the bodies uh, or the status of the body was different at different points. Was she um, you know, clothed? Was she covered? Was she removed? The, squat, the laser of the squad, I think, was done at a later point. And just the data collection is just um, questionable as foundational. So I think she's going to allow the laser measurements, you know, it's X number of feet mm-hmm. from point A to point B, but they're not going to allow plane of the video. And for me, as I try to grasp, why don't I like this thing? What is it? I just, I get this gut feeling. I don't like this. It's that I feel like it's that jurors will watch this and feel like they're watching it in real time, that I'm watching it as it's happening. And Which is, on all and your it's not. It's, that's no, not the no. case. Yeah. It's a, recre- it's a recreation. Right. But it still just feels real. And it's, and it's kind of the way we're going with things. So I just, I'm glad it was not allowed in. And I think it would be, had it been the reverse where the defense had done this, and you would have heard the government barking that it shouldn't come in. Okay. You, you believe, uh, and I've talked to you about this before, you believe that Officer Noor will, in fact, testify in his own defense. Usually defendants don't testify in their own defense. Sometimes they do. Yeah. And, and also a factor here is the fact that, that Minnesota law says a, a police officer can use deadly force when he or she feels that they are in danger, which is why many officers, most officers, do not get convicted of crimes. Right. They have, they have a statutory protection that you and I don't, and, and the defense will beat that home strong uh, all the way through the case into the closing argument. So they'll, uh, uh, you know, and I absolutely expect him to testify. I think it's been very, very good lawyering by the defense to not allow him to speak up till this trial. And I, as I understand, he's an articulate, you know, pleasant man. They have practiced over and over again. You just know with him about every question from both sides. They practice the defense answers. They practice possible cross-examination, posture, body language, eye contact, all those types of things. And I think he'll come off well. You know, and they and they talked about there's been you know there's been also some buzz in the last couple of days about the, the way the question has happened in the courtroom and the um, you know the government has accused the defense of planting breadcrumbs and that when they ask the potential jurors questions they're planting ideas or trails to follow up on later and uh, for example the defense would use the word ambush and that was the judge said no call that officer safety from now on because it's such a an emotional kind of phrase, but it starts to plant those ideas, right? Which I think is good. I think that's good. I, I jokingly say breadcrumbs. I want to give the jury an entire loaf. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and 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 there was. I, I think the defense is going to point to that there was a case in New York, I believe, where there were officers who were fatally ambushed, and, and that obviously was, it happened in New York two weeks before. But obviously, any police officer who's out on patrol, that's got to be on their mind. 
Yeah, every every cop. I think it was ten days before, and every cop knew about that. And that's the question that they could ask Newark when he's up there. What other you know police safety issues, if they allow the, don't allow the word ambush, did you have in your mind at that time? And he can talk about that and explain that. So, and every officer knew about that. They also had ambush training. As I understand, this entire department went through ambush training. So, and I don't think there was any actually any handout or you know brochure or booklet for that program or study that they did. But they could talk about what they learned and. And Nora could try to talk about this seemed to line up exactly what I had just learned in my ambush training. All right. Uh, three charges here, second-degree murder, uh, third-degree murder, and manslaughter. Manslaughter is what, what uh, uh, Officer Yanez, the one who was – Geronimo Yanez, the one of, uh, who was accused of killing uh, – or Philando Castile was acquitted of. The third-degree murder is a very unusual charge. Very unusual, yeah. So we've got three charges here, and the, the murder three, is. I, and I, I looked up here the last few weeks how often that's been charged in the last 10 years, just charged anywhere in the state. It's just a very uncommon charge to charge. And I thought that this, the, the judge might rule earlier on in the you know months ago that that charge couldn't even go to the jury because it requires you to have an, you know, take activity that evidences a depraved mind. And, you know, and, and I think he helped render assistance right after. And that's such conjures up a, you know, a really crazy lunatic kind of an image to me. And, so and that's why it's, it's so unusual. Listen, Marsh Hallberg, thank you so much. We, we appreciate you uh, giving us your insights. And obviously, this is a trial that we're all going to be following very, very closely. Thanks, Sesame. Have a great night. Okay, take care. That is Marsh Hallberg. Uh, great perspective from him. He's always somebody that's great to turn to. And he's got a pretty unique perspective because he was a prosecutor for so long. And he also is a very well-known and very prominent criminal defense attorney. So we appreciate his insights. Well, listen, coming up on this edition of Saturday Night with Esme, we are going to talk about what it is like to try and prosecute sexual assault cases and the roles that forensic nurses play. They play such an important role and their role is one that is being taken into account as a lot of communities reexamine how they are prosecuting and how they are investigating sexual assault cases and are these investigations being handled correctly. So keep it here, folks. You are listening to the one and only News Talk 830. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. 